Hi there, Rolf here. Thanks for listening to this episode of my course podcast, Markets and Society. I've included a description and additional material where relevant in the episode notes. I hope you enjoy it. In this part, I'd like to discuss what I'm calling proto-state formation in the Andean River Valley civilization. And we're still in this world of a kind of invisible complexity that we are trying to ascribe to Paleolithic lives as part of that answer to the question, why did we not embrace our modernity until apparently so late in our species record? Why was it only in the last 10,000 years that we seem to have done anything of interest? Is there stuff that we're not seeing? So as we see from our example from the Inuit and their very complex seasonal morphology, very complex seasonal uh, behavioral cyclicality, there is a lot of technology being deployed by communities that leaves no material trace, has to be observed directly. And we can infer back then, so as, as communities we can observe seem to behave in this way, it seems reasonable enough to imagine that Similarly, large-brained human beings living 10, 20, 30, 50, 100, 150,000 years ago would have used that advanced cognition to solve problems in much the same way. So there's, in other words, an entire world of complex social, cultural, and I'm going to go so far as to say technological behavior that's hidden from view simply because it left very little or no evidence that we can interpret robustly to come to any kind of, any kind of direct conclusion. But nonetheless, it does seem reasonable to suggest that it was there, because that helps, that goes a long way to explaining why people with advanced cognition did not make significant efforts to change the uh, overall conditions of their lives. Those lives were adequate, fit to purpose, as the, as the Brits like to say. But what about politics? What about the notion of if we have economies operating, if we have societies operating, cultures operating, what about the political equation? Well, politics is a difficult term to use in isolation because wherever you have people living together, you always have politics. That's what Aristotle tells us. Human beings create politics as soon as they create relationships. But what about more formal types of politics, established hierarchies, systems of command, structures of authority? Is there any way that we might infer that kind of complex behavior in a Paleolithic past by, again, using inferential logic from what we can see to then imagine possibilities for what we cannot. And indeed, uh, I think we can. And so this is why I'm giving you the example today of the Andean River Valley Civilization, the ARVC. Now, no one actually calls it the Andean River Valley Civilization except for me because there's some politics involved in the naming. Some people call it the Caral Supe. Some people call it the Norte Chico Cultural Complex but I'm actually working out my own thoughts about this, and so I decided to call it the ARVC, the Andean River Valley Civilization. That's what I'm going to refer to it today as, the ARVC. Now, there's a backdrop to this specific example, and it's a very broad backdrop, and it's the backdrop of the story of climate change over the lifetime of our species. I know, climate change, again, uh, but it's not specifically climate change in the sense that we're thinking about it now, but instead, the ways in which an oscillating climate have important physical consequences for the Earth. So let's start our story with the very basic observation going back a couple of lectures ago uh, that one of the consequences of bipedalism, phenotypical, and cognitive changes was that we as human beings were able to make ourselves independent of any specific habitat. Recall, right, that we are a generalist species. We can move to pretty much wherever we want and we can find a way to thrive in those environments, enabled by our physical evolution and by our advanced cognition. 
And so there was a suggestion going all the way back to the 1960s, perhaps even earlier, but made famous by an American geographer named Carl Zauer, who suggested that once early hominids, perhaps starting even with Australopithecine, but almost certainly by the time we get to, say, Homo erectus, that it, made a lot of, it makes a lot of sense to think of those newly habitat-independent bipedal hominids moving out of the forest and looking for the most suitable environment in which to live. And a very suitable, or perhaps the most suitable such environment, is one which is going to give you abundant year-round resources, a place where you can basically set up camp and you'll have all the things you need for the entire year. Where are you likely to find such locales? Well, we have an interesting discussion for this course from the Yale political scientist and geographer James Scott, who wrote a book called Against the Grain, a kind of alternative history of the emergence of the modern state. And in the first chapter of that book, he lays out a hypothesis for explaining sedentism, why people choose to live in one place and one place alone as opposed to moving around all the time. As seems to be clear, sedentism, this behavior of staying in one place, predates agriculture. So before we were able to grow our own food, nonetheless, human beings were capable of living in one place, which has been a long-standing problem around the Neolithic Revolution. How do we link together the emergence of agricultural technologies with the emergence of sedentary behaviors. Obviously, to have agriculture, you have to be in the same place because you have to tend to your crops. Conversely, if you're living in the same place, you have to have the food to enable living in the same place, which would seem to require agriculture. So you end up in a kind of chicken and egg uh, problem, a so-called ontological dilemma or paradox, which came first. And Scott makes a good argument, I think, for resolving this by suggesting that the first human sedentary communities, at least as they can be detected in the archaeological record, were located in places where there were what he calls complementary ecologies. Uh, and specifically, he's looking at wetland environments in the Middle East, in what is today Iraq. These are locales or places where you have, for example, a marine ecology and a riverine ecology and perhaps a savanna or a woodland ecology. And they all combine together in such a way that whatever time of year it is, there is some resource that's available to you. So in some months, you might be off fishing in the sea. Other months, you might be hunting deer in the woods or whatever it might be. But the point is that these ecologies come together to create resource availability, thereby making permanent communities viable outside of an agricultural paradigm. The interesting thing about the wetlands hypothesis, which is looking to explain why we see sedentism, say, 10,000 years ago, is that it draws our attention to this notion of people establishing themselves in a place where there is an abundance of food at all times when they need it. That seems like the kind of things that human beings, or even earlier hominids, armed with advanced cognition, would seek out as a result of an optimization principle. I should go to the place where there is the most food. And so Carl Zauer was uh, one of the first to observe that such places are very likely to be found where? Not in caves, not inland, not on the savanna, but where? On the coast. Marine resources typically are year-round and, depending on where you are, are often very abundant and thereby can support permanent year-round communities. Or if they're not year-round, they'll be abundant enough in their seasonality to provide resources that can be stored for year-round use. We saw in our last discussion that deferred storage technologies is typically not associated with hunter-gatherers because of the principle of mobility. But if you're staying in one place and there's a whole bunch of resources that are coming to you, say, half of the year, and you have a way to dry salt and store them, then at that point you don't have to be moving around and that principle of mobility is, is diminished. 
This raises the question, well, how come, if it's possible that human beings were living perhaps quite sophisticated sedentary lives along Paleolithic coastlines, why don't we see them? Why don't we have traces of such lives? And the answer is climate. Because recall that the lifetime of the human species has taken place during the so-called quaternary glaciation, which has been characterized up until just very recently by a set of very significant climate oscillations. Those climate oscillations have led to the periodic freezing over and subsequent melting. And what happens? Sea levels go way down as the water is trapped in the ice. And when they melt, the sea levels go back up again. So if we look, for instance, at the sea levels taken during the last glacial maximum, the LGM, and compare it to today, what we find is that current sea levels are significantly further inland from where they would have been when much of the northern hemisphere was covered by ice. And as two examples, the modern U.S. state of Florida, which was known as this sort of panhandle shape, at the time of the late glacial maximum was about twice the size that it is today because the continental shelf of Florida is extremely shallow. And so if I lower sea levels by even 10 or 20 meters, I'm uncovering a lot of land. And presumably at the end of the late glacial maximum, sea levels were 20, 30, perhaps even 50 meters below where they are today. Similarly, if we look at the region between what is today the British Isles and Denmark, there was a whole uncovered region of land called Doggerland that would have been essentially a kind of wetland uh, environment, presumably quite rich in resources. And we know that people lived there because as a consequence of um, North Sea oil exploration, we keep dredging up artifacts that testify to the lives of both human beings and Neanderthals living in this area. That entire Doggerland region is now submerged under underwater. But if we go back, say, 10 or 15,000 years, it would have been not only above water, but furthermore, a very good place to live because it was characterized, as best as we can tell, by an abundance of resources. So people presumably would have situated themselves in, in Doggerland. Perhaps if today, if the British Isles were still connected to uh, the continent, we wouldn't have Brexit. Maybe we should bring Doggerland back. So this means that when we go back to our Paleolithic past, a lot of those lives, if they were lived on the coastline, those coastlines have subsequently disappeared and we have almost no way of recovering them. Even if we were able to develop and devote the technology, time, and money needed to somehow engage in the extensive underwater archaeology uh, to go to the places where these coastlines used to be, even if we could do that, our chances of finding anything are very, very small because think about the corrosive and, uh, effects of salt water and the erosion effects of sea motion in general. So these settlements, because of where they were located, have essentially disappeared from view forever. If you're a professional archaeologist, this is a problem because the only way you make your career is by publishing papers based on what we call evidence. And you can't say, well, I think there's a bunch of stuff that we can't see. doesn't count, which leads to an, a long-standing problem in almost every field of human knowledge. Absence of evidence is not necessarily evidence of absence. Just because there's something there that we can't see doesn't mean that there isn't something there. And this particular problem of the Paleolithic coastlines seems to be a very exemplary example or exemplary case of that old adage. An absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. So 
in order to resolve this, many archaeologists have simply said, well, we don't think that human beings developed the requisite technology to take advantage of marine resources until relatively late. In fact, up until very recently, the dominant mode of thinking was that marine resource exploitation was more or less co-evil with, meaning at the same time as, as agriculture. So as we developed agricultural tools, then also we developed the necessary technologies like fishing nets and fishing hooks and other kinds of things that we would need to extract resources. But if you think about it, does that make sense? How hard is it to make a fish hook? Not that difficult, right? That's not a very, very advanced technology. Far less advanced than, say, the amount of effort needed to, to take some wild plant and over many, many generations turn it into a domesticable crop. So the notion that somehow fishing technology only arrived very late seems to suit much more an agenda of, of archaeology, which needs evidence in order to support the publication of, of scientific papers, than it does a realistic explanation of how Paleolithic lives might have been lived on the coast. So the question then is, well, just as we did with our Inuit communities living in circumpolar regions, using modern examples to make inferential conclusions about what a Paleolithic life might have looked like absent direct evidence, can we do the same thing? Can we take an example and infer from what that example is telling us something about what Paleolithic lives on coastlines might have looked like? Hence my discussion of the Andean River Valley Civilization, the ARVC. So we have not one but two Peruvians in the room. I was expecting to have a total of zero Peruvians in delivering these remarks. So I'm, generally speaking, if your audience is more ignorant than you, it gives you some space to, to operate in. But in this case, I have to be very careful about what I say because you know Peruvians get something wrong about their country. They're going to be after you. So anyway, like all of the world's coastlines, the Peruvian coastline, or we might call it the Andean coastline, was similarly affected. Now, the Andean coastline, as you know, if you can, if you can close your eyes and imagine South American geography, is a shifting, uh, a shifting coastline as we move from south, so the tip of Chile, north, all the way up, say, to Ecuador. At the very bottom, we have a very steep bathymetry as the Andes come very close to the coast. That means that as you go into the water, there's a very, very steep descent into the water. So even if uh, sea levels are rising or falling by 20 or 30 meters, it's not uncovering a lot of land because the profile of that land is very steep. However, as we move further north and come up to what I will call north-central Peru, right? As we move to north-central Peru, the bathymetry, the profile of land, becomes shallower and shallower. So by the time we're, say, 200 or so kilometers north of Lima, instead of being a very steep drop into the ocean, we have a much more shallow drop, meaning that in the, a Paleolithic coastline off of this part of the Peruvian coast, would have been 10, 20, 25, 30 kilometers further offshore than where it is today. That's the first point. The second point is the nature of that coastline. As we know, at least two people in this room are aware, and probably many others, Peru has one of the most productive fisheries of the world. It is the fishery that runs along this coast as a result of upwelling patterns in the Pacific Ocean that supports an abundance of marine life less abundant now than we've been now since we've been commercially exploiting it for the last half century, but certainly in ancient times, extremely abundant. And the primary fish, there are many fish that are part of this marine ecology, but the primary fish is the so-called anchoveta, a type of anchovy. 
which is a very small fish, but uh, schools in vast, enormous quantities, hundreds of millions of tons of biomass uh, just off the coastline. This means that if you were living on a Peruvian coastline, this means that with relatively little effort, you could go into that coast and with a basically primitive net or some kind of trap, you could then pull out large quantities of these small anchoveta fish. Today we don't eat the anchoveta, we tend to turn it into, into, into meal for things like, I don't know, animal feed and stuff like that. But it's a perfectly viable, uh, a perfectly viable fish as part of a human diet. So we seem to have very good evidence that that is precisely what Paleolithic Andean coastal peoples were doing because all up and down the north central Peruvian coast we have uh, remnants of prehistoric settlements, essentially fishing villages ranging from the far north, and it goes well off of this map, uh, down to the far south. The ones I want to focus on specifically are clustered around four river valleys, the Fortaleza, Patevilca, Supe, and Huara, and apologies for my pronunciation. These are uh, river valleys that descend from the Andean mountains into the coast. They're not full-time, year-round rivers. They're bringing meltwater uh, or precipitation out of the mountains into the coast. Sometimes they're quite dry, other times they're quite lush. But the point is that they're steep, narrow ravines that lead from the coast up to the Andes Mountains. So the interesting thing about this particular complex is that from these fishing villages, these established uh, communities along the coast, what we find is stretching into these river valleys, and it's not just these four, there are presumably others that have yet to be uncovered, we find a pattern of settlement moving from the coast up river. So we have a settlements on the coast, and then we see further uh, communities being established up river. And these communities, or these cultures, let's say, culture that attaches to these communities, show not insignificant sophistication in terms of their architectural, cultural, artistic expression. So for example, things like figurines or carvings on walls. There's also uh, musical instruments made out of bones that have been recovered in these places. And perhaps most intriguing of all, one, as far, as far as I'm aware, just one so far, one gourd, or a kind of squash, has been discovered with a weird carving on it, which is astonishingly similar to the figures that we associate with which famous Peruvian culture? The Incan, the Incan exactly. So in other words, if we take the iconography of the Incan pantheon and sort of broadly look at its morphology, its shape, its form, it seems to be being presaged by, anticipated by, the iconography that we find in these Andean River Valley civilizations. The Incan civilization is flourishing in the early modern era, 14th, 15th, 16th century, pre-contact. But these civilizations are flourishing 5,000, perhaps 6,000 years ago. So insofar as we can conclude something from a similarity of iconography, it suggests that there's a kind of cultural continuity that extends in an Andean context all the way back to the Paleolithic or prehistoric to the moment of contact, to the moment when Incan civilization is disrupted as a result of, of contact. Put another way, if we were to put this on a timeline and map on all the different Andean civilizations that have been named by scholars, there seems to be a kind of continuity at a cultural level. What changes is where they're located. But in terms of who they are, there seem to be uh, some consistencies, which means 
there are elements of Incan life that seem to be anticipated four or 5,000 years before by patterns of culture, settlement, and I'm going to argue politics that we find associated with the Carol, uh, with the Carol Supe. So it's a very interesting case indeed. And it's especially fascinating because I say with almost 100% confidence that with the exception of two people in this room, no one has ever heard of the Caral Supe civilization. It is essentially outside of the story that we tell about who these people were. And yet, look at the kinds of things that they were doing. This is Machu Picchu. This, 4,000 years before, 4,500 years before, is the temple complex in the city of Caral, the main city of this civilization, at least as we've been able to discover it so far. And you will see that this is not an insignificant form of monumentalism. It has got a, a large sunken court. It's clearly pyramidal in structure. This is clearly a very sophisticated form of cultural expression. And insofar as there is a link between sophisticated monumentalism and sophisticated people, therefore we're looking at the fluorescence of a sophisticated culture. So what you find is when you look at the cities up the valley, starting from the coastal city of Aspero, moving up to Caral, which is about 20 kilometers away, and then it's stretching all the way up uh, to the skirts of the Andes, and this is a distance in, all, in total of about perhaps 30 to 35 kilometers, is that there are all these small little settlements perched on the banks of the river valley, typically up a height, and they all share common architectural elements. They all typically have these kinds of temple architecture, suggesting that they're all part of the same civilizational, the same civilizational complex. And... What is true in, in say, the, the Supe River Valley also appears to be the case for these other river valleys, the Fortaleza or the Patevilca. There is a coherent, homogenous form of cultural expression that is emerging sometime around 3500 BCE, or about 5500 5, years ago. And in each case, seemingly starting from the coast and moving inland. Now... I haven't been there, so I've not done this myself. It's on my agenda to do. But have you walked? Have you done the walk? Yes. So the interesting thing is, is you walk up these... I mean, it makes sense, right? You're on the coast, and about, what, 50 kilometers away, you have the Andes. So this is not just a trek inland. It's a trek inland and up a height. So as you're, say, walking the first 10 miles or 10 kilometers, it's not that bad. But as you hit the next 10 kilometers, it's getting steeper and steeper and steeper. And the last 10 kilometers... For every kilometer you're going, you're probably, every kilometer horizontal, you're probably rising 100 meters or more in vertical height. So it's steep to get up these valleys. Here's what makes it very interesting. And I bring you findings fresh from the latest issues of the archaeological journals with respect to who these people are. Skeletal remains have been found of people, particularly in the, Rio, uh, the valley of the Rio Supe, skeletal remains have been found on the coast and between and all the way up. If you look at the bones of these skeletal remains, and they can be dated and so on, you can work out what the people were eating. Through the bone composition, you can work out, you can tell something about their diet. So if you look at people on the coast, what would you expect them to be eating? Fish. Fish. Makes sense. As you move further and further inland, up a significant height, what would you expect to happen to the amount of fish in people's diet? Just by common sense. Decrease, Decrease quite significantly, right? Because they're living... 10, 20, 30, 40 kilometers from the coast. Therefore, the availability of fish is going to go way down. You're going to find other things. The interesting thing is that this part of the world is very famous for the cultivation of one of the key crops today, maize, or as we call it, corn. Corn is first domesticated in this region. So a lot of people assumed that when we saw these settlements moving upriver, 
that they were enabled by the domestication of maize. There was an alternative food source that could support populations living far away from the coast. Shocking then to discover that maize cultivation doesn't happen until a thousand years or more after these settlements get established. So they are, at least in their beginnings, established before the existence of an alternative crop that can be grown in domesticated form to scale. And that's what the latest evidence from these skeletal remains reveals when you look at the the dietary composition of people living well inland. If it's, say, 95% animal protein is coming from marine resources at the coast, 30 kilometers inland, it's still something like 80 or 85% of animal protein is derived from marine resources. So this makes no sense. Why would smart people who are dependent on fish to survive choose to move further and further and further away from where that resource is located? Now, we know, as I mentioned at the beginning of our, of our last discussion, I mentioned something called optimal foraging theory. There's all this work that's being done on where people locate relative to resource availability and so on. We don't need to get into the math of it, but I can tell you simply that it is not optimal foraging if you locate yourself 30 kilometers away from the resource that you need, and not only 30 kilometers away, but up a significant steep hill. That is a very counterintuitive behavior, which raises the question, why were people settling in this way as opposed to just establishing new settlements along the coast, which is the obvious place for expanding populations to to move out to. Why do we see them settling inland? That's the first problem. And then the second problem is, how were they even able to establish settlements up there? How does somebody start living in a settlement 10 kilometers, 15 kilometers, 20 kilometers away from the coast, still dependent on maritime resources for their animal protein? How does it get to them? Are they hiking every single day? 20 kilometers to go back to the coast to get the food that they need, it doesn't seem like a very likely explanation to be carried on at any scale over any length of time. And yet this is the pattern that we see in multiple river valleys, in multiple communities over multiple centuries. So it's a bit of a mystery. Something strange is going on. Well, let's tackle each of those questions in turn. First, let's ask the question, why would people living on the coast in close proximity to this abundant resource, choose to move inland. What would be the theories that we might float? Go for it. Maybe there were invasions? Invasions, good guess, except, do you see any walls? No walls, but it's an excellent guess. Yes, one of these might be insecurity, and one of the ways we can proxy insecurity is we find walls. But there are no walls. No walled communities suggests there's not insecurity. What else? Storms and natural impacts. Okay, that's exactly right. It's not just any old storm, though. It's a specific weather pattern that's associated with this part of the world. What's a specific weather pattern that we associate with the Pacific, the South American Pacific coast? El Nino. El Nino. Very recent scholarship, and by very recent I mean published in 2021, found something very interesting, which is that during the period of eustatic sea level rise, meaning the... uh, the rise of overall global ocean levels, the El Nino effect disappeared for a variety of reasons, climatological combinations, which I can't get into, but the El Nino effect was suppressed uh, during this period of sea level rise. Another way of saying that is that during the period when these coastal settlements were being established, say during the first three, four, five thousand years of settlement along the Peruvian coast, 
the El Nino effect was not operative. Once sea levels stabilized around 5,000 or 6,000 years before present, at that point, El Nino returns. Now, what is the El Nino effect? The winds, instead of blowing from east to west, start blowing from west to east. The point is that the winds, the winds shift, and depending on the intensity of the El Nino effect, they can shift such that winds get blown on shore, and they bring with them then moisture from the Pacific Ocean. Where is that moisture then precipitated out when it hits the Andea elevations? And so these, these river valleys suddenly become inundated with uh, Pacific waters that then flush down. As they get precipitated out, it creates rather nasty storms, floods, and the like. So you end up with this competing combination of factors, which is the onshore winds blow sand uh, along the coast, and at the same time, you have silt deposits being brought down by these river systems, by these valley systems. So if you're somebody living on the coast, for the first, say, two, three, four thousand years that you're living there, coastline is well out to sea from where it is now. It's a very nice environment. It's very stable. There's no El Nino effects. The, the system more or less is in equilibrium. Then as a result of aeostatic sea level rise, we see the return of the El Nino effect. And now, how often does El Nino happen? It doesn't happen every year, but it happens with relatively frequent recurrence, right? It's a cyclical system. So every, what, three, four, five, six years, something like that. All of a sudden now, you have a shift in the wind currents, and then you have these very significant aeolian uh, storms in which sand is being blown uh, onshore. And one of the things that you see happening is it creates these large sand dunes, these ridges that emerge. It fills up bays, etc. There's all kinds of evidence that you can point to indicating uh, the impact of the El Nino effect, as well as bringing lots of silt down the river valleys. What does that make life look like on the coast? You're sitting there trying to do your fishing, and meanwhile, you're being sandblasted by strong onshore winds. Does that sound like a good life? No. The kinds of people who are going to want to, who are going to do that are the kinds of people who don't have a choice. So it seems pretty clear that the reason we see people relocating inland is because the climatological, or let's say meteorological conditions of the coast, particularly during these El Nino moments, became sufficiently degraded that it made life in the river valleys a much more compelling alternative than it had been, say, 500 or 1,000 years previously. And it further explains where we, find these, uh, where we find these cities. As you'll see here, the settlements themselves are not located in the valley right next to the water source, but up on the banks. And the reason for that is because when the El Nino flash floods occur, bringing all this muck down the river valley, you want to be 10, 20, 30 meters above so that you're not affected by the, by the flooding from these valleys. So these settlements are clearly being situated in the context of an El Nino weather event that's making both life on the coast more unpleasant and creating flooding in these river valleys. So that's a preliminary explanation for why we would see people increasingly move from the coast to the interior and further helps explain why as they're moving from the coast to the interior, they're taking their culture with them so that the same kind of cultural uh, expression that we see first articulated in Aspero, which is dates perhaps to 3600 BCE, then gets replicated in places like Pueblo Nuevo or Caral, maybe 1,000 years or 800 years later. So you simply relocate these temples. But we can perhaps make more than just an observation about the monumentalism. We can perhaps infer something about the structure of the society when we see this transportation, not just of people, but of architecture. If I'm building a large temple complex on the coast in my main coastal city, it suggests there's some kind of 
social, cultural, perhaps even political structure that's operative. If I then replicate that monumentalism 20 kilometers upriver in the city of Corral, what does it suggest? It suggests not only that people have moved, but what has moved with them. Their social, cultural, and their political structures have been moved. So one of the interesting things that, seems to sh that we seem to see is that over the course of, say, several centuries, that the center of this civilizational complex moves away from the coast and relocates upriver, up valley. Who are the people most likely to move? If conditions by the coast are bad, who are the people who are going to be moving? Farmers. Could be farmers, except remember we don't have any cultivated crops yet. Yeah. Mainly the elderly. Get, get your old people out. Well, it's the Paleolithic, so let's recall there aren't very many elderly, right? <laughs> the elderly are a problem that takes care of itself through early death. It's really bad here, but it's much nicer there. Who do you think gets to move? Rich people, right? As always, then and now, right? It's always the rich people who get to move. We might say elites. So insofar as there is a correspondence between monumentalism and the presence of an elite culture, if we see that monumentalism being relocated up valley, it further suggests that there is a reproduction of elite social structures up valley. And I think that explains then why we see things like the large temple complexes found in the monumental city of Corral, which has the largest concentration of these, uh, of these elements. Now, I'll draw your attention to another feature of this monumentalism. What is the shape of this structure? A pyramid. Built, by the way, at the same time as the ancient Egyptians were building their pyramids. Pyramids seem to be a very elemental way for human beings to think about making stuff. What do you think pyramids do for us? Think about the shape of a pyramid. What does it correspond to conceptually? It structures society. Exactly. Pyramid structures, maybe not always, but certainly in many cultures, seem to refer to some kind of hierarchical or structured political or social system. And we can contrast it with another type of building that we find in lots of different parts of the world that have no connection with each other, but that share a broadly similar form. And we saw it in our discussion of the Inuit winter architecture. What was the shape of the Inuit longhouse? A round shape with a bench around it, meaning that everybody gets to look at everybody. Everybody looking at everybody reinforces the principle of what? Equality. Equality, right? We're all the same. We're all in this together. We all get to stare at each other. So we find these kinds of round shapes. They have them, for example, they call them all kinds of different names, men's houses, whatever they might be. We find it in Gebekli Tepe in Turkey. We find it in uh, African tribal cultures. We find it in Asian tribal cultures. And we find it in Inuit tribal cultures. Build a circular building. Put a bench around it. You seem to be expressing a very basic feature of how we think politically. Namely, we are an egalitarian society. Or we are in a society that wishes to embed at least some kind of egalitarian principle. By contrast, take all the societies that, again, without having any contact one with the other, are building pyramids, what does the pyramid seem to be telling you? We are a society that builds within it what? What kind of structure? Hierarchical social structures. Hierarchical social structures are characterized by concentrating authority in the hands of a small group of people who then can exercise that authority over a much larger group of people. And this is an important observation because if we solve the problem of why it is that people move inland 
at one level, namely they're trying to get away from degrading environmental conditions on the coast, it creates another problem. How do people get fed in these communities? Since we know that marine protein remains a significant part of their diet, how are they getting that protein? Now, an earlier tradition in considering the Carol Supe or the Andean River Valley civilization argued that what emerged was an exchange economy with things like maize and cotton and gourds being grown inland and then being taken down to the coast and exchanged for fish, specifically anchoveta, which sounds nice because it, we create these complementary economic systems. I'm fishing here. I need gourds for my buoys. I need uh, cotton for my nets and so on. And I'm up here, I, can, I don't have any fish, but I have the cotton, I have the gourd, so let's engage in a mutually beneficial exchange. What's the problem with that, with that conclusion or with that solution to this problem? It's the same problem we have with agriculture and sedentism, right? It presupposes, the, existing, it presupposes sorry, the existence of an economy that can then be locked into an exchange system. But as we know, since these cities existed for at least hundreds of years before those exchange economies, if they even existed, emerged, there must have been something else operative to explain how they, how they could have worked. And the situation gets further complicated when we realize that the obvious way to move goods up River Valley in this region would be using what? Peruvians in the room. What are the pack animals of Peru? Alpacas and, and llamas, exactly. Alpacas and llamas. So it would seem reasonable, okay, they had domesticated alpacas and llamas, no problem, let's put a bunch of anchovies on these on these poor beasts and send them upriver. But domestication of those pack animals takes place many centuries, perhaps up to a thousand years after these villages are established, which means that all of the maritime resources that are being captured on the coast and moved inland are being moved by who? People, human beings. Imagine every single day, large numbers of people with huge baskets of anchovies strapped to their back walking 10, 20, 30 kilometers inland, uphill, to feed people in these, distant, in these distant settlements. So this is a problem. How are you going to convince lots and lots of people to move anchovies from the coast well inland if you don't have any kind of functioning exchange economy? What's that going to require? There's no money. There's no exchange. There's no trade. What's it going to require? What might make that work? Religion going to offer to the gods. That's an excellent explanation. Yes. If I build a very big monumental center and I make a, an especially important pyramid, maybe I can convince people that they have to bring every single day a bunch of anchovies to show how much they honor our gods. So that's part of it, I suspect. And indeed, that would explain why we see in all of these particular villages iterations that seem to refer to some kind of ritual or ceremonial <coughs> complex. Part of it. What else are you going to need, though? That may not be just in and of itself enough. What? Settle everything up. Settle everything up? What do you mean? That they would have to. Yeah, but how do you get there in the first place? I think about the hierarchical structure again, because like, there's two options motivating people. For one, giving them something in exchange for doing something. Yeah. And the other one is forcing them to do something because otherwise they don't get something. And I think the second one is probably the most probable thing. Exactly. What are our two models of authority? Cooperation or coercion? I agree to do something because I see it as something that I'd like to do. Coercion, I do something because I'm being told to do it and I'm afraid if I don't, something bad will happen to me. 
Remember I said that the principles of the Carol Supe civilization seem to be echoed across subsequent Peruvian cultural complexes. If we fast forward to the Incan society, what do we see in Incan society? An extremely rigid, stratified, codified, hierarchical system in which there's a lot of authority concentrated in the hands of a small elite. Of course, it's always dangerous to write that back, but if we look at the pattern of settlement that's taking place up these valleys, it seems that the most reasonable explanation, absent some exchange mechanism, and it's not to say that these are incompatible. At some point, indeed, an exchange mechanism may have emerged as goods started to be grown up river that could be then exchanged for those resources in the coast. But in order for these, for these settlements to be established in the first place, there must have been a constant and reliable way to have human beings move large quantities of calories, animal proteins, up considerable distances to keep these populations alive. And that, therefore, means it was not a capricious, idiosyncratic, or ad hoc system. It had to be some kind of structured system. And the best way to establish a structured system is to have some kind of political society so that the people living in that society can essentially be coordinated or organized according to some set of underlying precepts. To your point, a great way to convince people that they should be hauling large amounts of anchovies upriver and 100 meters of, of altitude is to somehow convince them that there's a larger ritual, religious, or ceremonial complex within which these efforts are being enfolded. And that would explain then the sophistication of the seemingly religious monuments that we see, and in addition would also help explain why that religious monumentalism seems to reinforce the notion of political hierarchy. But broadly speaking, it seems my argument would be this pattern of settlement upriver is only possible in the context of a political society. If you don't have some kind of political society capable of managing resource transport in this way, these settlements are not possible. Moreover, in order for that to even happen, that means this political society didn't begin with the establishment of Carol. Where did it begin? It begins on the coast. It's a political society that has literal origins. It has coastal origins. Political societies emerged on the coast, and then once those coastal regions became increasingly less desirable to live in, that political system could be leveraged in order to allow the civilizations to expand to more hospitable environments upriver. So what does that mean? Think about it. That means, if my argument is correct, as I say, as yet unpublished or untested, so it may be completely wrong, wouldn't be the first time I've been spouting total shit, but if the argument is correct, what that means is we can infer from this pattern the existence, the Paleolithic existence, not only of a complex cultural society, but the existence of a complex political society that was capable of organizing itself according to elites, which had some kind of coherent, rational structure of authority that could organize people to do different things. And with that in place, then when conditions changed, they were able to leverage it and then move inland. And we can then further infer, based on the longevity of that, stretching for thousands of years later, that the efficiency of that political structure was indeed uh, very advanced because it gets replicated over and over and over again, even as specific examples of these civilizations disappear. But then when they spring up in other places, we see these cultural political forms being reproduced or replicated in these subsequent iterations. So it suggests that there's, instead of thinking about these different types of Andean civilization, there is an Andean civilization, one civilizational complex that has multiple 
iterations, and it begins where we can't see it. It begins somewhere underwater, under 10, 20, 30, 40 meters of water. That's where it begins. And then once sea levels rise, we start to see it in a specific iteration. But we can infer, I think, with a fair degree of certainty that there must have been some kind of previously existing foundations to that civilization in order then to enable this, its first gesture of moving away from the coast and inland. And so by way of conclusion, think about the consequences. If we can take this example and use it to infer the presence of some kind of sophisticated political complex operative in this environment, who's to say we can't see the same thing in all the other different coastlines that have also since disappeared from view in all the other parts of the world where we know that Paleolithic peoples were living? Europe, India, Africa, parts of Asia. Surely, if we can see this in South America, it's not a big stretch of the imagination to imagine that our Paleolithic ancestors in those locales as well, likewise, had been developing the kinds of political, social, cultural structures that we see echoed here. And that makes sense, because what is it that allows people living together to create sophisticated political structures? What do you need? Do you need iPhones? Do you need computer chips? Do you need Instagram? What do you need? You just need advanced cognition, people capable of using their brains in order to work out the best way to live in a certain environment in order to optimize community survival. Sometimes that's egalitarianism, sometimes that's hierarchy, but in either instance, it's another example of social technologies being deployed in ways that while they are invisible to us directly, can I think nonetheless be seen inferentially and reminds us then that this notion that our real history only begins with the Neolithic Revolution is a very short-sighted way for us to be telling our own story.